Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. In today's episode, I've again made a blog post available to you in audio form, which is what you're listening to right now. I've crudely called these episodes audio blogs, and I'm presenting them to you in case you prefer this format over the written one. If you'd like to access the written form of these blogs, you can do so at inthetrenches.net forward slash blog. Once you're there, feel free to subscribe so that you can receive blog posts in both written and audio form as they're published. In any case, regardless of how you decide to consume the blog material, I sincerely hope that something contained within is genuinely helpful to you along your own leadership journey. In a previous audio blog, I discussed several financial considerations unique to acquiring software companies, specifically those of the small to medium-sized variety. In this week's audio blog, I present several non-financial considerations for the prospective acquirer to consider. Much of what I'm about to discuss is intended to uncover how much technical debt any given target company may possess within their code base, and I will define what technical debt means shortly. Though substantially every software company has some amount of technical debt, those that are weighed down by an asymmetric burden of it tend to ship code less frequently, struggle to keep pace with competitors, release fewer new features, spend more time fixing bugs, regularly miss release targets, possess code bases that are difficult to build upon, have slower implementations, and generally be much more expensive and capital intensive to operate and grow. In this way, what start out as technical problems quickly accumulate and become significant business problems. Thus, prospective acquirers would be well served to thoroughly diligence the amount of technical debt possessed by any given target company and proceed very carefully, or perhaps not proceed at all, with those companies who seem to possess much more than their fair share of it. So what is technical debt? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, when software engineers develop any given feature, they typically operate on a spectrum bookended by two extremes, though most work that gets done usually falls somewhere in between these. Approach number one, deliver the feature as quickly as possible with things like quality, scalability, and extensibility being secondary considerations if they're considered at all. Approach number two would be to develop the feature in a way that prioritizes scalability, extensibility, and high quality over speed. Though this naturally necessitates much more time, it ultimately produces a better work product. Though the external observer might reasonably conclude that approach number two should prevail all of the time, that rarely happens in reality. Often, non-technical considerations compel engineers to follow an approach that more closely resembles approach number one. These could be things like time-sensitive feature requests from important customers, promises made by the sales team, or pressure to hit an agreed-upon deadline. Though it's understandable and perhaps even expected to see features developed under approach number one from time to time, if too many features or products are developed in this way for too long of a period of time, then technical debt begins to accumulate within the code base. In essence, technical debt refers to the accumulated impact, measured in time, cost, and required rework, of decisions that prioritize speed over quality and scalability. Effectively, it's the cost of making too many make-it-work decisions, which is approach number one, and not enough make-it-right decisions, which is approach number two, over too long of a time period. Technical debt shares many parallels with monetary debt in that a. 
it is not necessarily unexpected and not necessarily a bad thing, but too much of it certainly can be. B, it must be regularly repaid, in this case, often by reworking or even rewriting the underlying code in question. Otherwise, its balance will continue to grow and accumulate, which will in turn create further problems. And C, the debt always comes due. Now, in this case, debt in a code base can come due in any number of ways, including the various business problems that I listed in my introductory remarks. Building on top of a code base that is riddled with technical debt is akin to building a house on top of a foundation that you already know is cracked, leaky, and unstable. No matter what you do with the rest of the house, the stability, structure, and overall soundness of the building will always be inherently compromised. Let's uncover some ways to identify technical debt. As I mentioned, too much technical debt can significantly impair the ability of an acquirer to grow that business and can necessitate additional time, cost, and energy not originally contemplated in the initial investment thesis. The good news is that there are things that one can look out for that may suggest that a company is shouldering more than their fare of this problem. I list these considerations in the remainder of this audio blog and break them out into three different risk categories. We'll start with high risk, which is a strong indicator of technical debt, medium risk, which is a likely indicator of technical debt, but more investigation is likely required, and finally, lower risk factors. These are things that may suggest a risk of technical debt, but aren't necessarily signs of it in and of themselves. Note that all of the considerations that I'm about to discuss in isolation is not necessarily a sign that your target company has more technical debt than it ought to have. I'd instead consider this list a bit more broadly and suggest that the more of these factors applied to your target company, the more worried you should be. So let's start with the high risk signals. The first is the percentage of releases dedicated to maintenance versus innovation. So in this case, you would analyze every feature and product release over the past two years and categorize those releases as either maintenance releases or innovation releases. Maintenance releases can be thought of as those that are necessary for the product to keep functioning, but don't really include any new features or functions that users ask for, notice, care about, or are willing to pay for. These releases usually include things like bug fixes, code cleanup, scalability work, security work, failover work, and so on. Innovation releases include new, forward-looking, visible features that customers ask for, notice, care about, and demonstrate a willingness to pay for. These often come in from the sales group, they get voted up on user boards, or at least provide customers with new or different pieces of functionality. In companies with a lot of technical debt, you'll often see anywhere from 50 to 100% of the releases being of the maintenance variety. This often suggests that the engineering team is so busy simply trying to keep the product afloat that they have no time to meaningfully improve it in a way that will generate an incremental willingness to pay from customers. The longer this dynamic persists for, the more problematic it becomes for the potential acquirer. Consider if company A has spent the past three years simply keeping their product afloat on account of too much technical debt, whereas company B, who's their direct competitor with less technical debt, has likely spent those same three years building new features and functions that now likely significantly differentiate them relative to company A in the eyes of customers. The second high risk signal is the number of escalations from various internal groups into engineering. In a company with a lot of technical debt, the engineering group often receives a lot of escalations, which I would define as very urgent bugs to be fixed or features to be added to unstick any given customer from internal groups, usually from support, customer success, or professional services. 
In an ideal world, no new incremental code should ever need to be written to implement or onboard a new customer, nor to address any existing customer support tickets. One way to measure this is to simply measure what percentage of overall developer time is spent on escalations from internal groups that are not explicitly included in the company's roadmap. The higher the number, the more concerned one should be. The third high-risk signal has to do with modules, features, or products that are specific to one customer, or at least a small number of customers. In enterprise software, there is perhaps no word that is as scary or as dangerous as customization. As product management thought leader Rich Miranov regularly says, truly successful software companies essentially aim to sell identical bits of code to as many customers as possible. One can see why the strategy of build once, sell many times is much more economical than that of build many times and sell once each. One way to identify this is to get a list of all customers, including an inventory of all products, modules, and add-ons owned by each of them. Now, you're ideally looking for this list of products to be as uniform as possible. If you see certain modules, add-ons, or products that are only owned by a single customer or a very small number of very similar-looking customers, then you'd be wise to investigate further to ensure that these haven't been customized to the specific needs of any of them. Closely related to this consideration is the extent to which the company's product offerings have been properly productized, meaning that they've been clearly delineated into individual SKUs, and those individual SKUs have in turn been sold into multiple customer sites. Non-productized software offerings can often signal a risk of technical debt. In its most extreme form, consider a custom software development firm which simply develops any piece of software requested by customers. They don't really have SKUs to sell in particular beyond the time and materials of their development group. Companies like these operate under the build many times, sell once each ethos, which is about as inefficient as it gets in the world of software development. The next high risk signal is an old technology stack. Now a technology stack essentially refers to the combination of tools, technologies, and languages that software companies build their products on top of. To the extent that they're using old technology that's either been deprecated, is no longer supported by its provider, or at the very least just isn't widely used any longer, then there's a reasonable chance that a lot of time, money, and effort will be required to simply bring that code base into the modern day without the addition of any new features and functions. Any experienced technical advisor or software industry veteran can advise on how current any given tech stack is across both the back end, which is non-user facing, and the front end, which is user facing. The older the tech stack and the code base, the more likely it is that you'll have to expend a lot of resources trying to dig yourself out of that hole. The final high-risk signal is with respect to the quality assurance group, the size of the team, and the mix of manual versus automated testing. Now, a critical part of any development operation is the quality assurance, or QA team, that's responsible for vigorously testing the code written by their peers in the engineering group. There are two primary clues to look out for that might suggest that a company has underinvested in QA, and the more that they have underinvested, the more likely it is that they are accumulating meaningful technical debt. The first is the size of the QA team. In my experience, there should be roughly one member of the QA team for every two members of the engineering team. The second is the relative mix of manual testing versus automated testing within QA. Over the past 10 to 15 years or so, countless tools have come onto the market that automate certain tests that QA teams have to run. In these instances, a script is written one time, and then that script can be applied against every new feature or product to test for the variable that it was designed to test for. 
you can see how hundreds or even thousands of automated test cases can significantly scale the efforts of a QA team. On the other end of the spectrum, there's purely manual testing, which is exactly what it sounds like. Individual members of the QA team must manually evaluate the code base and the UI to look for bugs, problems, or inconsistencies. You can see how unscalable this approach is, and thus how many bugs and errors it's likely to miss. You want the percentage of all tests represented by automated tests to be as high as possible. Now let's look at some medium risk signals. The first is the source, frequency, and cadence of new feature releases. Now, if a company isn't regularly releasing new features, functions, or products, these are innovation releases as described earlier, it could be a sign that their development team is too overwhelmed with maintenance releases. In addition to the frequency of releases, the source of new feature release ideas could be equally informative. In companies with a lot of technical debt, these sources tend to be more internal than external and often feature support, customer success, or professional services urgently requesting new functionality to address an immediate term problem faced by a single customer. In companies with less technical debt, sources of new releases tend to be more external than internal as they face fewer such instances. Now, why isn't this a high-risk signal? Well, many small to medium-sized software companies, especially those that have been owned by the same person or company for 10 to 20 years, tend to be more inward facing than they ought to be. And the founder slash owner slash CEO often acts as the unofficial head of product. So the source of new feature requests in and of itself isn't necessarily a high risk sign. Further, some businesses that fit this description eventually come to be run as lifestyle businesses for the owner and CEO, where she aims to maximize the personal economics that she can extract from the business, as opposed to investing more in something like product R&D. This dynamic could be the primary driver behind fewer new releases as opposed to technical debt. The second medium risk signal is the speed and variability of implementations and customer onboarding. Now in many software companies, after an initial sale is made, there is some sort of setup configuration or onboarding that must be done in order for the new customer to use that product, often performed by a professional services or customer success group. To the extent that work is paid, which is usually on a simple cost per hour basis, you will want to pay attention to the following two things. First is the percentage of unbillable work. Now professional services or customer success group will often provide customers with a scope of work prior to engaging with them that outlines what work is to be done and what represents billable versus non-billable work. Though it is of course normal for some scope creep to emerge during the course of any given implementation project and is similarly normal for some work to be of the unbillable variety, too much of either of these dynamics may be suggestive of a product that requires the involvement of engineering to facilitate a smooth implementation, either because a bug in the code base is regularly identified or new functionality specific to this one given customer needs to be added, which would certainly be a bad sign. Second thing to look out for in this regard is the percentage of projects that come in over their original time estimates. If, for example, a 40-hour implementation regularly takes the company 60 hours to perform, it is at least possible that each implementation is so unique to any given customer that there are at least 20 hours of unknown time inherently baked into each project. Again, if those unknowns exist due to bugs or features specific to any given customer, then that could be suggestive of technical debt. Now, why this isn't a high-risk signal is because Yes, these issues could be attributable to technical debt, but they could also be simply reflective of an ineffective professional services or customer success operation. 
Maybe they're ineffective at properly scoping the work, properly staffing each project, or properly accounting for their billable versus unbillable time. The next medium risk signal to look out for is a lack of true product management processes. Now, the best description that I've ever heard about the role of the product management group is as follows. Product management decides what to build and why, and engineering decides how to build it. In my opinion, product management is one of the most important disciplines to get right when building a successful software company. And for that reason, it may serve as a warning sign when you see a software company that is totally bereft of its basic tools, structures, and processes. Indeed, a glaring lack of these things could represent a key ingredient in the creation of technical debt. Here are just a few of the possible signs that could be suggestive of an environment where there's a lot of technical debt looming below the surface caused by a lack of product management discipline. A, the company has no process for evaluating and prioritizing new feature, function, or product requests, and often the owner or CEO acts as the sole arbiter of such decisions. B, employees or customers go straight to software developers with product or feature requests. C, software developers often decide in their sole discretion what to work on and why. And D, true product and feature requirements are not gathered before the coding begins. They're essentially arrived at as the coding process unfolds. Now, why isn't this a high-risk signal? Well, as previously mentioned, it's not necessarily abnormal for a small to medium-sized software company, particularly one that's been owned by the same person or company for the past 10 to 20 years, to lack any sort of real product management discipline. For this reason, I wouldn't be frightened by this dynamic in and of itself. However, as potential acquirers of software companies, you'd be well served to proceed with due caution if you see too many of these factors at play. Finally, let's look at the lower risk, but at least possible signals of technical debt. The first is capacity issues in support or the required size of the support team. Now, a software company's support team is generally responsible for fielding customer questions and resolving any product or technical issues experienced by those customers. A code base that is high in technical debt often creates a situation where the demands on the time of the support team are extremely high due to the large number of underlying issues within the product. If your target company has a support team that meets either of the following criteria, then further investigation is likely warranted. Number one, are they overwhelmed? As measured by capacity utilization, the number of outstanding support tickets or the rolling weekly average of the difference between tickets created and tickets solved. You want to see this last metric decrease over time, otherwise it's suggestive that the support team is getting further and further underwater with each passing week. Or is your support team too large? A support team that's too large relative to the size of the organization might suggest that a team that large is needed to simply field the volume of incoming customer issues. There are no hard and fast rules, at least the ones that I'm aware of, about how large a support team should be, but there are a few ways that you can attempt to situate the team's size into some sort of context. First, you can evaluate the profitability of the team. Naturally, you want your customer support operation to be profitable and likely at a particular margin. Because you will know the fully loaded cost of the support team, you can compare that cost against the relevant streams of revenue to see if that group is sufficiently profitable. Another interesting rule of thumb is to simply compare it to the size of the development team. If, for example, you have 10 developers creating products, but require a support team of 10 to fix those same products, I would suggest that there's a potential imbalance to investigate. Now, why isn't this a high or even a medium risk signal? Well, of course, these issues could just be representative of an inefficient support operation, including over or understaffing, lack of sufficient tools to track and maintain outstanding support tickets, and so on. 
The next low risk factor is the number of developers as a percentage of the total employee base. Now, while this number could be high or low for any number of reasons, and in and of itself could mean a number of different things, prospective acquirers should inquire about development teams that are asymmetrically large relative to the size of the rest of the organization. If these teams are regularly releasing new features and functions with sufficient speed and quality, then it's likely not a sign of technical debt. However, if asymmetrically large engineering teams aren't regularly shipping code, releasing new features or products, or building code of suitable quality, then that may be a sign that the company requires a large number of developers to simply maintain the product in its current form. Well, why isn't this a higher or medium risk signal? Well, as mentioned already, development teams can be large for any number of different reasons. For example, consider a young startup building the first version of their product. The company could be almost exclusively composed of engineers until the product is ready for supporting functions like sales, marketing, HR, customer success, and so on. The last low risk signal that we'll evaluate is concentration. Though concentration is relatively common in small and medium sized businesses, and this could mean customer concentration, supplier concentration, channel concentration, etc., it doesn't come without its obvious risks. Specific to product, high levels of concentration can sometimes manifest in the code base if the company is so dependent on a single customer or supplier or channel partner that they feel absolutely compelled to add anything and everything that that partner requests of the product for fear of losing that relationship. Blindly acquiescing to the requests of any stakeholder is one of the leading reasons why software companies, particularly small ones, accumulate technical debt over time. Now, why isn't this a high or medium risk signal? Well, of course, concentration doesn't always manifest in the code base. It's simply something to look out for if the business in question is heavily dependent on a single stakeholder or at least a small number of them. Okay, so I've identified a target company that has a lot of technical debt. Should I cease my pursuit of them? Well, if you've identified an otherwise attractive company to acquire that has a lot of technical debt within its code base, should you automatically decline the investment opportunity? In my opinion, the answer is no, but it probably goes without saying at this point that you should proceed with a very healthy dose of caution. Here are just a few illustrative examples in which it may still make sense to proceed. First, the technical debt has been properly reflected in the purchase price. Though I subscribe to the belief that it's better to acquire a great business at a fair price than it is to acquire a fair business at a great price, otherwise attractive companies with lots of technical debt can still represent reasonable investment opportunities if the time, cost, and energy required to address that debt has been properly reflected in the purchase price. Buyers must try to help sellers understand that the time and capital spent reducing technical debt usually doesn't come with a commensurate revenue case, unlike, for example, the development of a new product that may present similar R&D costs, but at least provides the company with revenue upside to justify those costs. As a result, the buyer will have to incur non-ordinary course expenses that they wouldn't have to incur if they were to purchase an otherwise identical company with less technical debt. So here are some reasons to still proceed with caution, even if the technical debt has been properly reflected in the purchase price. A, it's very difficult to estimate both the time and the capital that will be required to get any company's technical debt down to more manageable states. B, there's likely massive asymmetry of information between the buyer and the seller. In this case, the seller is likely to be far better positioned to make the time and cost estimate, but is incented to make the estimate as modest as possible. And C, even if you do arrive at a fair estimate of cost and time, the process often tends to be more time consuming and more expensive than most initially suspect. 
The second instance in which it may still make sense to make an investment despite technical debt is if the product is not at all central to the investment thesis. Now, this example might be slightly more controversial as the product basically represents the essence of every software company. With that said, it still may make sense to acquire a software business with high levels of technical debt if the other considerations underlying the investment thesis are such that the required product work over the contemplated hold period is largely of the maintenance variety. Consider this, a mature software company that is only growing revenue between 0 to 5% a year because they haven't raised prices in 10 years and they don't have any in-house sales or marketing teams. The company regularly produces $4 million of cash flow with very low levels of customer churn because customers have very high switching costs and it would be very time-consuming, disruptive, or expensive to switch to an alternate provider. Further consider that the company has significant white space within a broadly diversified customer base to upsell existing products and modules into those same customer sites, most of whom only utilize the most basic version of the company's product. Combine that with reasonable leverage when capitalizing the investment in a shorter than normal hold period, extra points if you get a compelling purchase price, and you have the ingredients that may constitute a compelling investment opportunity in spite of the company's current product. Now again, this isn't a slam dunk. There are still reasons to proceed with a heavy dose of caution. First off, to say that the product is not central to a software investment thesis is almost an oxymoron. The product is the heart of any software company, so in order to succeed in spite of it, almost every other star needs to be perfectly aligned. Second, even if you do get an attractive purchase price to reflect the technical debt, a cheap multiple on the way in might mean a cheap multiple on the way out for you too. That's especially true if you're contemplating selling to a sophisticated acquirer and or if you don't plan on properly addressing the technical debt during the course of your own hold period. And finally, any time that anyone makes an investment where a certain variable has to be a certain way in order for the investment to succeed, in this case, the product has to ensure that it doesn't buckle under its own weight during the contemplated hold period, there is naturally considerably more risk involved. So let's wrap it up. As I mentioned before, software companies that are burdened by an asymmetrically large amount of technical debt tend to ship code less frequently, struggle to keep pace with their competitors, release fewer new features, spend more time fixing bugs, regularly miss release targets, possess code bases that are difficult to build upon, and are generally much more expensive and capital intensive to operate and grow. What start out as technical problems quickly grow and accumulate to become significant business problems for the prospective acquirer to carefully consider. Though some technical debt is to be expected, too much of it can render an otherwise compelling investment thesis moot. For this reason, acquirers must be very thoughtful in their analysis of both the product and the code base to ensure that the product, which is the foundation on which the company is built, can stand up to their plans for future growth.